Welcome to episode 1864 of Effectively Wild, a Fangraphs baseball podcast brought to you by our Patreon supporters. I'm Meg Rowley of Fangraphs, and I'm joined as always by Ben Lindbergh of The Ringer. Ben, how are you? I'm feeling better about myself because on a recent episode, I screwed up Taylor Ward and Tyler Wade for the umpteenth time, literally every time that I have mentioned (laughs) either of them on the podcast. I have to think, wait, is this Ward? Is this Wade? Is this Taylor? Is this Tyler? Sometimes I stumble in the middle of saying one or the other. Well, it's not just me. And in fact, the best baseball broadcasters there are also fall prey to the Taylor Ward, Tyler Wade mix-up issue. Who's a better baseball broadcaster than Joe Davis? Almost no one, right? Very short list of anyone. If you need someone to replace Vin Scully in the booth, you call Joe Davis. If you need someone to replace Joe Buck, you call Joe Davis. He's one of the best in the biz. And so allow me to play a brief clip from Joe Davis calling a Dodgers-Angels game the other day. Andrew Wants against Gavin Lux. Who lifts the first pitch of the inning to right. Or Tyler Wade. Or for Taylor Ward and the first out of the inning. So there you go. Even Joe Davis, one of the best in the biz, he can make the Taylor Ward-Tyler Wade mix-up too. It's the the Taylor-Tyler apocalypse. It's coming for all of us. No one is safe. Not even the most accomplished, polished broadcaster. No, and it's the sort of thing where it's like, you're like, okay, I'm going to look it up. I'm going to have the player page open in front of me. And I, (laughs) even that. Not enough. It's insufficient because you you're like, what if, what if Fangraphs got it wrong? <laughs> <laughs> right. I've had that thought. You know, the thing about it is, we don't really do that very often. Like occasionally, we will have to like, uh, you know, we'll have to like rerun stats because we get a file and it has a goof in it. But like mm-hmm. that doesn't. We don't. No, don't care. I'm like, this is going to be the one time. (laughs) Yep. So I feel some sympathy for every broadcaster who actually has to call those games and cannot just edit themselves if they screw it up, which inevitably we will anyway. It's tough, but we're all in the same boat when it comes to the Wades and the Wards and the Tylers and the Taylors. So... We have a guest. It is a familiar guest to some of our listeners. Fernando Perez will be rejoining us on this episode. He has joined us a couple times in the past, quite memorably, I would say, both times. But one of my favorite Effectively Wild episodes ever during the Jeff Sullivan era was episode 1093, when Jeff and Fernando and I did a live episode in Brooklyn. And that was a ton of fun. And Fernando, he is a former Tampa Bay Ray at the major league level, and he has been a bit of everything. He's been a poet. He's been a writer. He has been a baseball talking head. He is just a really interesting guy. And these days, he works for the San Francisco Giants. He is back in baseball, and he works as the director of video coaching. 
And he has a lot of thoughts about coaching and player development and the evolution of those things and how the Giants have managed to outplay the projections, most notably last year, but even this year, to a lesser degree, how they have managed to make some players better seemingly or help them be their best selves and how some teams still don't seem to have the ability to do that on a consistent basis. Like I was just learning this week about Yinsi Almonte, who is mm-hmm. a pitcher for the Dodgers recently of the Rockies. Yeah. <laughs> and I guess there are certain teams, right? It's like when someone goes from the Pirates to someone else or the Rockies to someone else, it's like, oh, look out, right? Yep. Like the analytically oriented progressive player development organization, they're going to get something out of this guy. And Almonte seems to be another example of this. Mike Petriel just pointed out on Twitter. He tweeted, so Yancy Almonte arrives in L.A. Suddenly he's throwing a lot harder, up two and a half miles per hour from his last year with the Rockies. He's got a sweeper with two times as much break as his old slider. And he is unhittable, basically. Yep. And Nick Groke, the Rockies writer, wrote about basically what did the Rockies miss with this guy and how the Dodgers have, I guess, had him shelve his four-seamer, which yeah. didn't have a great spin rate. And he's throwing the sinker a bunch more, I think, right? Right. And evidently it was part of the recruiting pitch that Dodgers pitcher Jake McGee recommended the Dodgers to Almonte and told him they know their stuff. They're going to teach you a lot of new things that you probably didn't get in Colorado. So sucks to hear for Rockies fans, though I guess they're used to that by now. But the point is there still is that gap between organizations somehow, even though I think everyone is aware of just how much a difference this new technology and information and coaching styles and communication methods can make. So even within that one division, right, there is a giant disparity. And and maybe the Rockies are just the obvious punching bag when it comes to this. So I think there's less of a differential than with most organizations. But still, there is still a disparity. And the Giants very quickly seemingly joined the ranks of like, oh, this team is good at this, right? It's like, you know, you have your Dodgers and you have your Astros and you have your Rays and you have your Yankees and you have your Giants. It certainly seems like so they are in playoff position as we speak. They have possession of a wild card spot. They're in a tough division and things aren't going as right for them as they went off last year. But we will talk to Fernando about how they have managed to do a lot of that and to take on the unwritten rules and just change their attitude toward the game. So I think it's a, an interesting conversation. He's a very interesting guy. Yeah. Well, and I think that it can, you know, I think you're right that the sort of the average is significantly higher than it used to be in terms of the the general acumen of of an organization. But I think that the, the you know, a situation like Almonte sort of speaks to what the gap can still be that yeah. even in the face of an organization like LA, which, you know, it, it's not like they haven't had their share of pitching injuries, but like this is a, a really good club. This is a contending team. They have a loaded roster. And even in the face of that, where you might say like, I, I don't know how likely I am to really get a big league opportunity in an organization like this, that the sort of possibility of them helping you to optimize your game is enticing enough to to say yeah this is where i should go so 
Right. Yeah. And you would think like once this was out there, <laughs> once books have been written about it, <laughs> et cetera, that teams would say, oh, we've got to catch up if we are not among the leaders here. And we'll just hire people or we'll buy these tools or whatever. But easier said than done. And Fernando talks a little bit about that, that you can't necessarily just snap your fingers and go from bottom of the barrel to top. I mean, it right. takes a lot of work and effort and putting the right people in place and all of that. So we will get to that soon. But we do have to follow up on just ben, a very pressing matter because uh, we <laughs> uncovered a, a mystery. Oh uh, my goodness! A phenomena. Um, yeah. <laughs> you know, one could call it a conspiracy. That feels strong, but not so far <laughs> off the mark. Who knew? I talked last time. Yeah, I, I mentioned last time that often we will post an episode and then immediately be humbled by someone pointing out something that we were not aware of. And I like oh. to learn, so that's great. But after we talked last time in some depth and detail about the Pete Alonzo car shield ad or multiple versions of the Pete Alonzo car shield ad, we learned that this goes way beyond Pete Alonzo. Pete Alonzo is the tip of the car shield baseball player (laughs) endorsement iceberg here. And so I stayed in Wonderland and found out how deep this rabbit hole goes. We both did over the past uh, couple days. We watched a lot of car shield ads. We sure did. (laughs) And we're here to report back. Uh, Someone should do probably like an exhaustive, complete ranking of the car shield ads. Conveniently, there is a playlist on the Car Shield YouTube channel. Which, can we, I'm sorry, can we <laughs> yeah. take a moment to reflect on the fact that, like, that exists? I mean, it, it certainly made our, it enabled our obsession, but it is a deeply strange thing that there is an entire playlist of commercials. Also, you have to watch a commercial before you can play them, which is... You know, I don't think that's Car Shield's fault, but I'm just mm-hmm. going to point it out as a, a small annoyance of modern life that I will probably think about once a week for the rest of my life. Yeah, I guess it depends on what your ad blocker situation is. Although I would hate for someone to block ads and miss out on the Car Shield ads. <laughs> to be clear here, this is not a Car Shield ad. We are not sponsored by Car Shield. Oh, no. I don't even have a car. And if I did, I don't know that I would be a Car Shield customer. I'm not really an extended warranty guy when it comes to other things in my life. But the thing is, there are 21 MLB-themed Car Shield ads. 21, you guys. 21. And Pete Alonso, I guess it makes sense that he was the one who first came to our attention because he's probably the most famous one of the endorsers here. I guess Walker Bueller would be. I was going to say. Yeah, the other contender. So beyond that, though, you would never really guess. And so what seems to be happening here is that they are embracing baseball's regional fan base, right? So we were talking last time about like, well, why is he not doing an ad with some bigger, more famous company? And well, maybe it's because baseball players are not the best known. They don't have the highest Q rating often, unfortunately, these days. And people follow their local team and they're very fervent about their local team, but maybe not national figures in the way that other celebrities or even athletes are. So maybe that is why CarShield has leaned into that and basically produced local versions of the ad for many different localities featuring players who are better known in those markets, although not even in those markets in some cases, essentially. I mean, maybe we can just do a little roll call here. So Kyle Tucker of the Astros has sponsored CarShield. 
the Royals, Chris Bubich, the Phillies, Matt Veerling. We'll come back to that because <laughs> that is the most like, who, why, what, what? Jay Bruce, retired now, Jay Bruce has won. Ian Happ and friend of the show, John Bugshambi, they've done a, a local Chicago version. Ryan Mountcastle of the Orioles has two. Also, I should mention, they cornered the market with the Happ and Chambi ad, but they also have Patrick Wisdom. Yes. He's doing one, too. In that one, as in most of them, Wisdom says, you can't afford to get caught looking. And then the announcer voice says, don't swing and miss. Not sure I would pair Patrick Wisdom with copy about not striking out. He of the 39% career strikeout rate, but okay. Yeah. Atlanta's Austin Riley. The Pirates' David Bednar. <laughs> sure. Austin Riley has two, actually, I should say, like Pete Alonso and like Ryan Mountcastle. The Tigers' version is with Akil Badu and Riley Green. Then you have Brett Phillips. He has two as well. Bueller, I mentioned. The Cardinals' broadcaster, Dan McLaughlin, he has a couple, as does Cardinal Dylan Carlson. He has two, so there are three Cardinals-centric versions, which is maybe because CarShield is a Missouri-based company, so they're playing to the base there, the hometown fans. I think they're based in St. Peter's, Missouri. So there are all kinds of variants, but there's sort of a template, wouldn't you say? I mean, there's sort of, I guess... Laura Mipsum, there's like a stock text that is used in these with slight variations depending on the player and the delivery, but like weird variations. Strange, (laughs) wild, bizarre. (laughs) What is the meaning that happens that it results in these? Because look, my organizing theory the last time that we (laughs) devoted time on our podcast to this was that CarShield was largely indifferent to you as the viewer understanding who Pete Alonso was. They wanted you to know that he was a baseball player, but they were not particularly concerned with you having like a, a, a greater degree of specificity than that. Now, I think that my theory was wrong, clearly based on the fact that there are so many of these and that they are tailored to local markets, as you suggested. So that makes the presence of the of the differences between the copy for these commercials to be just like truly baffling because if you are CarShield and you just want your viewer to be like, hey, a baseball player who plays in Major League Baseball, you don't care if the copy is the same or different. Like, you just need a guy who is plausibly a baseball player up there saying plausible baseball words. But they have specified in some commercials in a way that suggests that, like, they are either aware of the particulars of that player's repertoire or profile or that the player in question was like, I don't throw that, right? Mm -hmm. Like if you watch the Walker Bueller one, like the Walker Bueller one makes sense. It talks about his four-seamer. He's talking about- He throws a cutter to get grounders. True, fact check, true. True, true, fact check, true. Checked it out, fact check, true. (laughs) You know, and so like that one, you're like, okay, they either knew enough about Walker Bueller to- hand to him a script that was in line with his actual repertoire or they were like hey walker what do you throw and when do you throw it and what are you Mm -hmm. trying to do when you do and then walker was like well this is what i do and they were like cool we're gonna write that into the commercial so there are instances where they seem invested in the particulars Mm -hmm. and then there are times when it's like no 
we are <laughs> we are we are disinterested in that because you know they have guys who are not famously home run hitters or at least not famously home run hitters relative to Pete Alonso who is so famous a home run hitter that they feel the need to tell you about it several times in the course of his commercial right <sighs> ben what is this meeting? And is it like one meeting where they're like trying to decide who's going to say what? Or is this being piecemealed together? And then they're like, well, we already had Pete Alonso talk about defense. So I guess right. our only other option is to like make, I don't know, Ryan Mountcastle talk about hitting home runs because we yeah. can't have him talk about his defense. Like, what are we? That's the thing. Yeah. The listener who initially brought the Alonzo ad to our attention had two quibbles. One was that Alonzo says, like, he sees two seamers and he sees uh, breaking balls and even a changeup. And he said, well, changeups aren't that rare, really. Well, there are many versions of this ad where the hitter says something like that. Alonzo is the only one who says even a changeup. Right. Like, some so of them will just. A, is that an ad? lib on Peter yeah, Alonso's right. part? Did he decide to do that? Because <laughs> some of them will just say like or a change up or they will just list the pitch types or Mount Castle has my favorite delivery of that where it doesn't sound like he's ending the sentence. It's like right. he sounds like he's going to keep listing pitch and types and then just, then just doesn't. Just <laughs> and, then, off. and then they just cut. When I step in the box, I have to be ready for anything. A two seamer, a breaking ball, a change up. I'm Ryan Mountcastle, and out here, you can't afford to be caught looking. Yeah, but but yeah, did he just personalize that? And if so, why? And then also, yes, the thing where Alonso says he knows a thing or two about good defense. Now, as we noted, he's not a bad defender, and you can know a thing or two about good defense without being a superlative defender yourself. But why have Ryan Mountcastle then say that he knows a thing or two about hitting home runs. Like, you have Pete Alonso. He right. knows as much as anyone about hitting home runs. Why not have him say that he knows a thing or two, <laughs> all two, the things two about Two-time derby home runs. winner. Yeah. Two. I mean, you have, like, Austin Riley says he knows a thing or two about winning championships. I, I think Bueller says something like that, too. So yes. if you won a World Series, then they will have you say that. If you're Pete Alonso, like the first thing you think of with Pete Alonso probably is home run hitting. Yes. So why not have him say that instead of Ryan Mountcastle? I don't get it. And we had wondered before whether the fact that Alonso was in a car accident this spring had had anything to do with this and seemingly not, right? Because it's not Alonso, it's everyone. And I'm given to understand that CarShield doesn't even provide protection for accidents. It's more about like mechanical issues and right, that's that like kind of repairs. But other other <laughs> maintenance. Yeah. So it's yeah. just whoever they could get basically is how they do it. And there are these slight but confusing variations in some of them. And I think my favorite thing of all, because like these are fairly low budget, low production value ads. I mean, it's just guys standing there talking into camera, very obviously reading a cue card (laughs) and then like interspersed with some images of him swinging or something. The best thing is that the Kyle Tucker ad (laughs) has a major continuity issue, which is that Kyle Tucker, left-handed hitter, and they do show him like standing at the plate in a lefty stance and maybe taking some swings. Then they cut to Pete Alonso yes. swinging. <laughs> There's like one shot of Pete Alonso swinging in the Kyle Tucker ad, which just uh, slipped past the Car Shield editors, I guess. So that's just in there. <laughs> I think that's my favorite thing in all of them. 
Yeah, and it's like, look, I I have made the comparison before that, like, Kyle Tucker, you know, he kind of reminds me of, of Ichabod Crane from the animated Legends of Sleepy Hollow. And Pete Alonso does not remind me of that. Famously called the polar bear. Very different guys. And so mm-hmm. how did that happen, Ben? And the fact that they're obviously reading from cue cards makes me think that Pete Alonso didn't add lib line because, as right. we saw in his second commercial, where he is very clearly reading off the card. <laughs> in the course of the commercial like i don't think he's sitting up there going like this is the line that feels right you know i gotta yeah. I just gotta add an even in here so right. and look they are very low budget as you know but the budget can't be that low because there are a lot of them and some of the guys who they are looping into this you imagine like you know like you gotta make it worth walker bueller's time i think you gotta make it worth pete alonzo's time like mm-hmm. you know maybe not like Bednard. like that might not be you know there are a couple guys in here where they're probably like i got to be in a commercial right so good for them but it's a very it's a confounding thing the whole thing is just and they have so many guys that at no point were they like we should just ask if we can get like the 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 leak license so that we can put all these dudes in uniform (laughs) no yeah i mean it's like you could almost field an entire team out of car shield sponsors it's like do that i was watching this i was thinking like uh on wednesday austin riley and ryan mountcastle both had multi-homer games what do they have in common well they're both car shield endorsers so i don't know it's weird i guess the the most random one would be veerling with the phillies matt veerling so there is actually an article about this in the Philadelphia Inquirer, like that's basically like, why is Matt Vierling a pitchman for Car Shield? Yeah. And he sounds as confused as anyone. So he says, I'm quoting here, Veerling isn't offended whenever someone comes across his 60-second commercial on television or YouTube and wonders if it's some sort of joke. My friends see it and they're like, what the heck's going on? Veerling said with a laugh this week after getting recalled from AAA Tuesday. I think Bryce Harper saw it and was like, what, you're on TV? I'm like, yeah, I guess. <laughs> it's pretty funny. And then it says the story of how a 25-year-old outfielder with three career home runs winds up in a commercial for an auto insurance company begins with a phone call looking to build an advertising campaign around major league players. CarShield enlisted New York Mets star first baseman Pete Alonso and Los Angeles Dodgers ace Walker Bueller. The Braves' Austin Riley, the Cubs' Patrick Wisdom, and the Baltimore Orioles' Ryan Mountcastle also shot mostly regional spots. All are more recognizable, at least in their team's markets, than Veerling. But Veerling's agent is friendly with an executive <gasps> at CarShield, which is based in St. Louis, Veerling's hometown. That was the initial connection. It was a good opportunity for him to get his face out there, his agent says. And I have to tell you, for his first time doing it, he was really darn impressive. <laughs> in late March, on a day off in spring training, Veerling made the 45-mile drive from the Phillies Complex in Clearwater to State College of Florida's campus in Bradenton for the shoot. It lasted a little more than an hour. He thinks he did about 20 takes taking swings both with his bat and as a thespian by reeling off lines packed with baseball jargon. So he says, I'm not an actor. We filmed it. And yeah, now it's on TV. It's pretty funny. The interesting thing is that Veerling said, I know a thing or two about game-winning hits, which like at that point in his career, I don't 
think he had one. <gasps> he has since had one. He had a big one off of Josh Hader, so maybe he did know a thing or two. But why? Why have him say that? Why not him know something about good defense? I don't know. It's just all of it is kind of confusing. And yeah. apparently if you're like from St. Louis and you can call a car shield executive, you too can have a car shield ad. Wow. And like they had to have done two shoots, right? Because they have teams. Like a, a Florida and an Arizona Yeah, because, you know, yeah. like the Dodgers don't train in Florida anymore, mm-hmm. as we've learned. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And this is not the end of their sponsorships and even their baseball sponsorships. So they must be just blowing their marketing budget on baseball. There is actually a collegiate league that is sponsored by CarShield, the CarShield oh. Collegiate League. It's based at CarShield Park. What? In O'Fallon, Missouri. What? It was formed in 2020. So, yeah, there is a, a whole league called the CarShield Collegiate League. They play at CarShield Field. And it's not that they only have baseball pitch people. They also have, like, another strange assortment of celebrities. Like, if you go to their website... They say, we are becoming a household name. <laughs> and I guess we're doing our part on this podcast. Oh, yeah. If you thought CarShield sounded familiar, you're probably right. Through sponsorships with NASCAR, endorsements with celebrities like Ice-T, Chris Berman, what? Larry M.C. Reynolds, Ernie Hudson, Ric Flair, woo, <laughs> Vivica A. Fox, et cetera, et cetera. There's like some NHL versions of this. One of the guys from Shark Tank is on here who's well, like sure. supposedly worth hundreds of millions of dollars. Uh-huh. So I don't know why he needs the car shield money. But he's not actually worth <laughs> hundreds of millions of dollars. Perhaps, perhaps that is why. But it is just, I don't know, like, what the criteria are for, like, are you a car shield person? Are you car shield material? It's basically like, are you from St. Louis? <laughs> like, do you know a car shield executive? Are you a baseball player of some sort? Then good news. <laughs> you can have a 30 or 60 second spot with us. And I really, I do need to know if these are the people who call me all the time about mm. about extending my warranty. Because you don't drive, but I do. And I'm yeah. I'm fine, you guys. If this finds its way back to you, I would like to be off of your list, please. <laughs> yeah. You could do a complete ranking of these, and I encourage someone to steal that idea if they need to produce content somewhere. But I will say, like, the deliveries of the baseball players almost universally terrible to the point where I'm not sure whether they were instructed to, like, but, like hey. they're supposed to be bad on purpose. Yeah, like, don't learn your lines. Don't rehearse. I, I mean, I guess players were just driving over during an off day during spring training. They didn't put a ton of prep into this, but they Look, it's almost charming in a way, just like how unpracticed they are and how clearly they are reading. And it almost enhances the comedic effect when they are going for a comedic effect, which is another weird thing. Like sometimes the ads are supposed to be funny and sometimes they are not at all, although they may be intentionally funny anyway. Like there's a Dylan Carlson version Mm -hmm. that is kind of funny where they're like playing up the fact that they are just layering in all of these baseball puns and references and everything and kind of playing around with that. Car Shield is magic. I think they're wizards or something. Can't say that. It's anti-wizard. Car Shield, the only local that won't ask you where you went to high school. Cut. Take 24. Car Shield, like a heroic outfielder that saves the day again and again. Car Shield is like making a diving catch to end the inning. Just feels good. Car Shield is like getting a pitcher's best stuff and still winning the battle. Car Shield protects your car better than I play outfield. Wait, what? Don't strike out against expensive car repairs. So it's odd. Well, 
and you watch that one and like in order for the humor to work they have to like sync it to to dylan carlson specifically Mm -hmm. so again they have the capacity (laughs) to know if the commercial makes sense and are we supposed to think that they are just exercising it sporadically i i uh ben (laughs) yeah some of them follow a game show format Guess that coverage where it's yeah. like they ask them questions and the answer is always like Carfield is awesome. <laughs> so yeah. I think the best delivery award goes to Akil Badu. I think he was the most natural on camera. Make of it what you will. Most of these players are are white. <laughs> it seems like they have chosen mostly white players for this campaign, whatever that means. But Akil Badu, I think, is the best. Brett Phillips, perhaps unsurprisingly, he at least brings some energy and, and some enthusiasm, sure. as you would expect from Brett Phillips. But it's, it's not great. The on-air talent here, not particularly polished deliveries, but I guess that's part of the fun. Yeah, I I think that those two players probably do the best. I would maybe add the Hap Boog combo plays yeah, Boog pretty well. Yeah. Like they have they have nice chemistry. They both appear to also be off book in a genuine way, which right. is rare in this particular instance. So mm-hmm. it is funny though because in the um, the Hap Boog commercial, it's it's sort of like the second Pete Alonso commercial where like the, the guy gets in his car and he's like, "Yeah, Hap is here," and then like Boog like pops. <laughs> out of the back seat and is like i am also here and it's like wouldn't you have noticed two people in your car yeah listener you know, dylan like, wrote in to say uh boog is like a, a mob enforcer hiding in the back seat yeah it's like he just pops up all of a sudden like hello yeah i did think in all of that genre where someone is just like waiting in the car the other guy the guy whose car it is who just sits down is always named nathan even <gasps> though it's a different person it's a in each different one. guy <laughs> yeah so they brought in different Nathans for each version of these things. It is just, it's wild. I never suspected that there was such a network of Car Shield ads featuring baseball players. And I guess they got what they wanted, which is publicity on the baseball podcast. I don't know if that's what they were going for, but that is what they are getting here. It is just one of the, the strangest campaigns and the silliest that I have seen. Do you think that they made it? Look, I don't want to think we're important because like we have just our, you know, we have our little baseball podcast and I know that it brings joy to some, but like I don't want to overstate anything. Do you think they knew that we would be suckers for this and talk about it incessantly and give them free advertising? Targeted marketing for Effectively Wild. Yeah. Yeah. Bednar and Bubich say they know a thing or two about good defense. Like, they're pitchers. I mean, I guess defense is important to them. Sure. They, They would know a thing or two about good defense, but why not say, like, they know a thing or two about something explicitly pitching related. I don't know. Like the pitching version of this with some of them is like instead of the hitter version where it's like, oh, I get this pitch type and that pitch type and that pitch type. The pitchers will say, I throw this pitch type or that type. You know, they didn't mess with the script and the format too much. No. They changed it the bare minimum, basically. So you have Bednar and Bubich saying they know a thing or two about good defense. I don't want to denigrate their defense, but it's also not what I would think of first. No, I mean, look, sometimes if you're a pitcher, it is to your benefit to engage in bad defense because then they charge you with an error and you can momentarily keep a no-hitter intact. (laughs) Right. Just to reference recent baseball history, that was about (laughs) Tyler Anderson. Yes. 
So I guess we will link to, <laughs> to the playlist if anyone else wants to explore this for themselves. I think my favorite moment is in the Jay Bruce ad where they cut mid-smile. He's like just starting to smile and then they cut before he could finish the smile. And <laughs> It's very strange. That just speaks to the production values here. Anyway, I have uh, messaged Boog about this because in the Boog version, it identifies him as real car shield customer, <gasps> Boog Shambi. Some of these ads, it will say real car shield customer, or like in the game show version, the disembodied voice will say like, how do you know so much about car shield? And the player will be like, well, I'm a car shield customer. Yeah. And so I, I've asked Boog, like, was he really? <laughs> was he a car shield customer? Was he one before this ad? Did they give him uh, car shield privileges? Did they make him a, a car shield customer client so that they could claim that he was a real car shield customer? I've not heard back yet, but I will update anyone <laughs> if can, I do, if he divulges anything about the, the behind the scenes car shield process. Can Boog get me off the call list if indeed those are the Maybe. people calling me? Yeah. I never stay on the line long enough to hear what company it is because they're like, do you want to extend your warranty? And I'm like, oh, I still, <laughs> I still don't want to do that. I still would. I'm fine. I'm still okay. Thank you. Mm-hmm. Well, thank you to the many, many people who yeah. emailed and tweeted and commented and messaged yeah. <laughs> us, uh, sent smoke signals, uh, did a Paul Revere ride, whatever it was to alert us to the existence of their local car shield ad. Yeah. Although I, most of the ones who contacted us, even they didn't suspect just how deep this went. They're yeah. like, hey, there, there's a Patrick Wisdom version of this or there's a Walker Bueller version of this. Like, let me tell you, there are so many versions and so many players. It's a whole car shield fraternity. So it's yeah. really something. I now have like a Carrie Matheson like, wall of guys <laughs> with string yeah have to identify the car shield fallow period it's uh-huh. gonna be in yellow don't know yeah. anyway they all came out like at the same time i think like late april they just saturated the market we it's just blanket coverage no matter what fan of a team i guess there are still some teams that are lacking car shield representation so sorry to all of those anyway we want to get to Fernando. I will just mention I noted Veerling's big game-winning hit. There was also a big game-winning walk-off hit by a Philly who has been a guest on this podcast, Garrett Stubbs. And he debuted, I don't know if it's a new move. I'm sure this has been done before. But instead of the bat flip, he did a dramatic bat spike. And so I'm wondering if this is going to catch on if it hasn't already, like if if this is a a tired, wired situation Mm. with like tired bat flip, wired bat spike. He just like he slams it down into the ground very demonstratively. And I'm kind of over bat flips. Not not that I think bat flips should go away or anything. It's just that they're very common. And so I'm less excited about bat flips than I was before. Not that they were like my favorite thing ever. I wasn't like leading the bat flip charge, but fine with bat flips. Bat flips can enhance my enjoyment and ramp up the excitement sometimes, but they're so common now that when people make a big deal out of a bat flip, I think, you know, this is something we see every day. The bat spike is an Mm. interesting variation. So I'm sure he didn't debut this. I'm sure he didn't introduce it, but maybe this big highlight will help popularize it. And I'd like to see it because just as we talk about having biodiversity in baseball players and styles of play, I think we should have biodiversity in bat-based celebrations. Yes, I support that. I do I do worry about the ricochet potential True. of the bat spike, but you know, I think that that might just introduce like a level of skill 
to the bat spike genre that I look forward to seeing people explore. I mostly, you know, I operate under the assumption that if I were a baseball player, like whatever the maximally klutzy way of engaging in a particular activity would be, uh, that would be how I would do it. Not that I am especially klutzy in my day-to-day life, but I just assume that like that's what the baseball gods would would do to me. That's the hand I would be dealt. But I imagine that that is a, a less singular concern for people whose job is in some capacity to be well coordinated. Right, yeah. And I guess the term bat spike, now that makes me think of umpire Nate Tomlinson getting hit in the face by a bat shard the yeah. other day. I don't know whether you saw that, but it is was he a, okay? He is okay. Oh, that's good. There was a, a Mike Trout broken bat and somehow this bat shard flipped in such a way that it got like in between the bars of Tomlinson's yeah. face mask behind home plate and there's a still image which is maybe a little misleading I don't know but it was captured at the very instant where this bat was just like protruding through his mask and it looks like his face was impaled by a bat I mean that is basically what happened and he left the game and, and he was bleeding fortunately he's okay uh, you know relatively minor injuries like he could have lost an eye or something like it's not hard to imagine so it's a one of those things that i don't know that i've ever seen that happen before and it has to be like the perfect trajectory and angle and everything for that to happen but boy that was sort of scary if you see that photo like be careful content warning yeah on that picture yeah it is it will make you go yeah Yeah. definitely so glad he is okay seemingly and it does seem since we talked about it last time or two times ago, perhaps, that there is a, a backlash building, I think, to the position player pitcher just in the, yeah. the last couple of days. Now, there was a, a Bob Nightingale tweet, and the tweet said Detroit Tigers manager A.J. Hinch had a team meeting after the game calling it embarrassing that they used three position player pitchers to pitch in a game for the first time in their rich history. The last team to suffer the embarrassment was the Chicago Cubs in April 2021. Now, everyone in the world quote tweeted that with the I think you should leave meme for mm. you know we're all looking for the guy who did this right because yeah. <laughs> AJ Hitch obviously is the one who put Making those position players into pitch yeah. yeah I don't you know this is a Nightingale tweet and I don't know exactly like what Hinch said and I'm sure that Hinch is aware that he is in fact the person who put those people in and he was probably saying that it was such a blowout and, and that was right. what was embarrassing, embarrassing. and the, yeah the Tigers have been bad and yes. so the fact that they were in a position to use that many position player pitchers reflects poorly on the team, I guess. But if you're sick of position player pitching, I think that's the latest flashpoint. And and Brandon McCarthy, former guest and former pitcher, he tweeted, position player pitching is nonsense and needs to be outlawed. Rosters are already exploding with pitchers. Mm -hmm. Use them. So that started some discourse, and I'm kind of on board with it to an extent. I'm in favor of stricter legislation, I think, to cut down on the position player pitching epidemic. I wouldn't call it a scourge, and sometimes it's fun. And as I talked about, like the opportunity cost is low if you're just going to have a reliever pitching in an uninteresting blowout anyway. But it does seem like just the escalation in position player pitchers and the situations in which they're being used these days, coupled with the fact that there are just so many real pitchers, in theory, could pitch instead, I think that is leading to some growing frustration. So who knows? Maybe we will see those rules tightened to prevent certain position player pitching appearances that we have seen. Maybe. Maybe. 
All right. So let us take a quick break and we will be back with Fernando to talk about player development and coaching and the Giants. And just a warning for those of you who have some sensitivity to language, Fernando does work blue a bit in this segment. We won't be bleeping it because how often do you hear a baseball person curse up a storm in a public interview at least? Maybe it speaks to Fernando being an unconventional guy and the Giants being an unconventional team. Also, I just enjoy his swearing. So cover the kids' ears and we'll be right back. Fernando says it's understood. No offense, your credit is good. Folks had it, it's all gone now. You never had no rhythm anyhow. Fernando says, take a clue. Fernando says, you're overdue. Fernando says, take in mind. Fernando says, cash on the line. Well, we are rejoined now by our friend and former guest, one of our favorite former guests, Fernando Perez, who has uh, gotten a job in baseball since the last time we talked to him. So he will probably be boring now. He works for a baseball team. He has to watch his words. He has to be careful that he does not give out any proprietary info. And if he does, then maybe he'll ask us to edit it out even. But hopefully he'll be entertaining anyway. I think that he will. Fernando, welcome back. (laughs) <laughs> that's okay. what an intro huh? <laughs> all right already off guard here we go all right <laughs> yeah i'm not suggesting that you will be boring or that you should be boring it's just that you know people who work for baseball teams they're always cautious yeah. careful what can i it say happens. what can it i happens. say happens yeah once the khakis hit your skin we really like to butter up our guests on this show if you haven't gotten that. <laughs> that was uh, more like, I can't believe it's not butter, but I, I got it. <laughs> yeah, it's, uh, it's still Fernando. He's just, he sounds like a shadow of his former self now, but <laughs> no. He's fun. He is uh, the director of video coaching for the San Francisco Giants. So you've gotten not only a job in baseball, but a great gig in baseball, and you've had a front row seat to one of the most exciting successful seasons in recent memory or not even recent memory. But tell us how you got this gig. You started with the Giants last year as a video coach and now you're director of video coaching. It's funny, as you say it, I'm like, I'm just so lucky. I just keep having these really neat experiences in baseball. Yeah. Right? I was like a rookie and got to go to the World Series for no reason, basically. (laughs) And then this was, you know... Pandemic was tough, man. I like missed baseball in a, you know, in a way. And I started talking. I don't mean like in a way. I mean, in a way, like I just really was like almost in my feelings missing baseball in in some ways. I think it just kind of, you know, for many people, especially the New Yorkers, pandemic felt kind of like end Mm timesy. And like, I think people were like, let me... You fucking pick off some of these items on the bucket list or something. And I just kind of like started talking to different people in the game. Obviously know a lot of people working in the game and not all those conversations were super fun. Some of them were great. I talked to Charlie a lot, just like one of my favorite people in baseball forever, forever and ever. But not all of them were kind of fun. I mean, if I would say that there's like this, there's a bit of 
you know, like teams kind of often put this front, like they just like have stuff figured out and like, what could you possibly do for me? It's like a little bit arrogant. But um, mm. when I was talking to Cap and the Giants, it was like, it didn't feel like a baseball thing, which was really, really cool. And honestly, I was very much prepared to like do something very, very regular you know, just like be like maybe more of a traditional coach and kind of, you know, I'd probably not start like directly in the big leagues after being so far away from baseball for mm -hmm. for so many years, which is part of the reason of wanting to get back in. I mean, I was like realizing even I hadn't done even baseball TV in quite some time, but I was realizing I'm like, oh, I'm like making shit up on air. I have no idea what I'm talking about. <laughs> So, um, I'm like, no, now, you know, apparently I'm not the only one though. Cause I watch TV. So, um, yeah. So I, I was talking to them and I had this idea of video coaching kind of like kicking around. It was like one of those things that it's like, I, th I would think about it for a while. And then I was just like, no, that's like too ambitious or too weird or something like that. And really, I had like, I did not intend on bringing it out. Maybe for like another year, I was going to kind of pitch teams. But, you know, then it was like, and again, also when I was talking to teams, like I wasn't even sure that I would work that year. Like I was kind of thinking, you know, start to sort of talk to some teams and maybe get in the year after. But yeah, I mean, you know, talking to Cap is is like just a lot different than talking to other baseball folks. So it was kind of like, hey, I have this experimental idea like on my shelf. You want to look at it? He's like, fuck yeah, I want to look at that. So we, <laughs> we kind of like, it sort of went from there. But then also it was like, once I was talking to them, it was like, I want to go to Farhan University over like the other universities. <laughs> so yeah. um, it was like, it was like, okay, so now that this conversation is is going kind of well with them. It was like, you know, hey, I have this this thing that you might like. And then, yeah, here we are. So what did you plan to pitch teams on in terms of the role? And then how has what is how would you describe your role now to those who might otherwise make up things on TV? <laughs> <laughs> Uh, already regretting that. <laughs> so it's just like kind of the idea that it's 2022. People are the average person, the average young person is just less inclined to have in-person conversations. They're glued to their phones. It's been years now of of us, of many people just being a lot more inclined to digest something in like video content format than they are verbally. And especially like in the moment, you know, if I've got to talk to you about something, like let's say that we have a meeting, like, you know, I call a meeting and we talk about this thing, like maybe you have to take a shit. Maybe you <laughs> are in like many, many other places. Maybe the meeting itself is like itself a nerve wracking thing. Like I'm, I for sure blacked out during every single meeting that I ever had, important <laughs> meeting that I ever had in baseball. Like every time I got cut by Joe Madden and Andrew Friedman, I was like, I had no idea what was going on. I was just like, <laughs> looking like sweating and like looking at people's faces, like moving. But did Madden have a mohawk at the time? Do you remember that? Um, <laughs> did he have a mohawk? I don't think he ever fired me with a mohawk on. <laughs> 
He did have one, though, in 2008, he, right? There was a moment. Oh, yeah. Period. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I followed him right off that ledge. <laughs> we were talking about that the other day because, you know, he was just fired by the Angels and it was reported that he had gotten a mohawk just before he was fired in an attempt to motivate the players. And he never actually got to show off the mohawk because he was fired uh, before he could. And we were wondering, like, well, if he had not been fired, would everyone on that team have had a mohawk? Like, would Shohei Otani have had a mohawk? And we were wondering about the psychology of that as a player on that team, like when that kind of thing happens, are you like, oh, no, I guess I've got to go along with this or I'll be like the not team player? Or do you really get in the spirit of it? And you're like, hell, yeah, I want a Mohawk. Uh, in 2022, it's different. I mean, in 2008, <laughs> for me, it was like, this is pretty easy for me. It's like last week I was uh, eating at Denny's. This week I'm at, <laughs> I'm in the big leagues and my manager just got a Mohawk. Like, I should probably get one. It's like the math is not very difficult there. Yeah, right. Okay. But, you know, 2022 and it's, you know, I don't know. We've had many cycles of Mohawk, so maybe there'd be some, you know, some resistance to it there. But, um, yeah, yeah Sorry, that's a sad, that's a sad, no, it's okay. Uh, interrupt it's a, your video coaching explanation. That's a sad, that's a sad, Mohawks. <laughs> that's a sad, that's, that's like kind of a sad story, but yeah, you know, he'll be back. Mm-hmm. very soon so wait what was i talking about <laughs> being a video coach. video coaching being a video yeah. coach and how video coaching can like reach people in weird places or help sure, to potentially sure. alleviate anxiety about meetings and stuff yeah so in general it was like a it was an idea that i hadn't even really thought about sports yet i spent a year you know covering soccer i, I was i covered the champions league for about like a year or so and soccer has just been on my mind. I love basketball. There's like not a day that goes by that I'm, you know, like in the in the thick of like enduring baseball culture where I'm just like, oh God, I wish I played basketball. Like I love basketball. I love, I love all of these other sports. And I was just thinking about how it would possibly work to essentially support your coaches and reach your players in this medium. And then obviously the closer I got to thinking about baseball, it was like, okay, how would this work in baseball? So it would be different for every sport. And then within every sport, it would be different for every team. There would be some teams that have different needs. The way that it works for for this team is kind of specific. And I'd like rather not get into the specifics of how it works for them because it's kind of their, in a sense, it's like their proprietary thing. But, you know, the broad strokes I've kind of laid out there. And um, I think that at this point we're running, you know, like last year was sort of like a very light version of what I thought that it could be. And this year it's definitely more involved. I have, you know, some more some more support and resources and stuff like that. But still, there's there's like, you know, plenty more there. Yeah, so I'll just stop there. So are you in uniform? Are you around before, during, after games? Like, what is your schedule roughly? Or, or how do you work with the front office or the players to the extent that you can say? <laughs> I got khakis. I got a uniform. I got so you, shorts. So you go both ways with that. Okay. I, huh. I go both ways, 100%. <laughs> yeah, I mean, last year there was not really any time to do any on-field stuff like at all in a lot of ways you know in in some ways I'm kind of like 
like a diplomat. I'm kind of like sort of, you know, there's a lot of coaching and a lot of things that already exist. And um, I'm just kind of like making sure that a lot of that stuff doesn't get lost. Right. And just like either go over people's heads or just like be forgotten or any of those things. So, yeah, I guess that's the best the best way to explain it. Yeah, I was going to ask about the blurry lines between the front office and the field staff these days. And maybe when you came up with the Rays and Madden, they were kind of early exemplars of of those two groups really working together in a collaborative way, perhaps. But definitely over the almost 15 years since that time, it, it seems like, you know, even with the Giants, right, you have someone like Brian Bannister, another friend of ours who is a pitching coach, but he's a director of pitching. It's kind of a, a coach, but also a front office role, sort of. So do you consider yourself one or the other? Is there a distinction or is it just that the communication is is kind of so hand in glove that it's the same entity, at least ideally? Well, when, you know, there there have been many teams that have essentially every team at this point has attempted to have this sort of swingman role between the front office and, you know, like the players or the coaches, let's right. say. Yeah, Either, I've called know, it a, a conduit in the past. I think Banny's used that term conduit, too. Yeah. Right. If you do some digging, there have been some spectacular failures. Uh, <laughs> I'm not at liberty to, to disclose those, but there have been some spectacular failures. Now, why, especially in the past, right, when you know, analytics was kind of like, like Facebook in 2002, like, uh, will it beat MySpace? I don't know about this analytics, <laughs> like that, that kind of thing. Yeah. But now, well, I should still say that even at this point, there are, you know, teams that are still kind of like, I don't know. So, right. um, you know, if, and again, it's not that it's, it's only this, but this is like, I would say 80% of the issue, right? To analytics or to not analytics. 80% of the issue that is addressed by having this conduit role, swingman role, is this. And there are still some teams and, of course, players that are just like, nah, 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 I'm not really into that. Now, mm -hmm. fortunately, in this organization, I think all of our coaches will tell you that the job is made really, really easy when you have especially intelligent players that are just in or at least in to listen. That makes everything so much easier. I mean, there are probably teams right now, I mean, for sure a couple of years back, but right now where there are team, there are like players that are leading like micro revolutions, like against, you know, you, the use of this kind of information. So it's kind of, it can be kind of hostile. So here there isn't really a blurry line. And I think it's in part because the coaches speak the language. And so it's not really, um, there isn't like a distinct line, I would say. So I don't know what I, I would consider myself just somewhere in between. I mean, in a lot of ways, I'm just reporting in a, in a lot of ways. You know, there's there are so many, you know, you've talked to Banny. There are so many amazing content providers here, right? Banny, between Banny and people like Kai, Dustin Lind. And then, you know, obviously, you know, front office people, Scott and, you know, Zach and, you know, people like that. There's, so there's, there's just so... There's just constantly, and then there's a hundred coaches. So then there's just fascinating <laughs> conversations, like always, always, always going on. And then just in and around baseball, you know, maybe in talking to you guys, there will be something that makes its way in front of someone somewhere, whether it's a minor league or somewhere or somebody on our major league staff. 
I wanted to ask you about those 100 coaches. It's not quite 100, but I think that when folks were casting about for explanations for the spectacular season that the Giants had last year, one of the things they hit upon was the size of the coaching staff and the seeming advantage that brought. And I'm curious sort of how you see the advantages and disadvantages of a staff that size, because I think that for a lot of fans, they think of coaches as sort of a, a unified front and then players as a unified front. But obviously, there are going to be different approaches and philosophies and perspectives in both camps. So what are the advantages and disadvantages of a, a staff that size? You know, as you ask that very, very good question, I sort of regret saying 100 there because <laughs> I'm sort of playing into this. There is, you know, this narrative that we just have like, all these coaches. It's a robust have staff, though. Yeah, but it, it's is, like it is robust. 16-ish. I mean, it's, it's again, it's hard to define, I guess, but yeah. It, it, isn't, it isn't too many more than what's around the league. Also, people are like hiding coaches under different roles <laughs> yeah. and things mm -hmm. like that because they don't want to like seem like they're having too big of a staff because they'd be like weird or whatever. <laughs> so advantages. Several of us could drop dead and we're good. Uh, there's a lot of, there's a lot of changeover, you know, as I'm noticing, there's so much changeover in baseball and I don't know, it's, I, I don't know if it's so related to that. Maybe it's just, I just feel like making the point of that the changeover year to year is just, you know, has just left such a deep impression on me and as to, you know, the challenges of having, you know, continuity and keeping proprietary information and things like that. But yeah, I mean, there's obviously the like the cartoon moments of, you know, you've got like four fungo hitters, each with their own flipper and there's <laughs> stuff like that. But, you know, it really the 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 stock PR answer is, you know, diversity of thought. It's also just true for sure. We do have a lot of interesting people here who think fairly differently it is a weird Brady Bunch for sure. It's pretty great though. I don't think that we annoy the players. One of my favorite things about it is that, you know, there's a, I, I was sitting in on a meeting that I remember was actually amazing meeting that we were having with Anthony Desclafani when he first got here. And Bailey was basically saying to him, you know, one of the reasons we have three coaches is if you find one of us annoying, you could just talk to the other ones. Right. And he said it obviously like, you know, a, a little bit differently, but uh, it's really, really true. And so the culture is that the culture here is really, you know, coaches are consultants. So like, you know, why not have one in, you know, different colors or different shapes and sizes, like just in case one doesn't, you know, quite rock with you. So I think that there's only advantages. I don't, you know, the disadvantages, I don't really see. I think if you look around your office, like you could maybe say like, oh, I wish we had somebody that did this. And it's like, voila, there they are. So I don't see any disadvantages, but I'm open to entertain some of them if you want to propose some. <laughs> yeah, I guess I wouldn't see a disadvantage necessarily, but maybe just a logistical challenge. I think I read somewhere, I think this is out there, that there is like a tracking system that the organization uses to kind of note, okay, this person talked to that player and they talked about this, like basically just to make sure that everyone's sort of on the same page and that everyone knows what conversations are going on, I guess 
just so that you don't have, you know, pitching coach A saying one thing and then pitching coach B says something else without knowing what pitching coach A said. So I guess there's a lot of coordination that has to happen, right? Yeah. But, you know, I think that that's a perfect example. Like, doesn't that just strike you as like smart and something that like every company should do? Yeah. I mean, obviously, you know, we we've been a part of this culture for a long time. And a lot of times, like somebody is doing something that's like very like 2007 in Silicon Valley. And people are like, this is fucking crazy. (laughs) And and that to me sounds exactly like one of them. It just is smart. Because uh, and it can happen in generally like I, I'm a generalist, so I, I spend time I'm, I'm particularly embedded with with the hitting core. But, you know, there are different projects that are serving pitchers as well, you know, especially through the you know minor league system and stuff like that. So in general, I just like try not to say much or I preface basically everything with like, you know, uh, you don't have to listen to this, but this is what I was thinking you know and and i think that's just like generally how how it should be obviously the 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 opposite of that is something that is super prevalent throughout baseball to this day at every level where it's like i'm a coach i have an ego and i'm going to put hands on you and try to get you to do a thing mm. that i could then claim credit for and that is like it, it's it's like the coach disease and and it's everywhere and it's the worst And so um, I just think that that's like a, you know, like a risk management system sort of built in, which is great. Yeah. So you join this team that has a storybook season, I guess you could say, which is not to imply that there was uh, some flukiness associated with it. That was kind of a conversation that we had all year long about that team. I mean, I'm guessing you didn't assume that you were joining a 107-win team when you took that job. And I know no one else assumed that. And of course, the Giants famously beat all of the preseason statistical projections by the widest margin of any team on record. And so the whole season for us was just like, huh, the Giants are off to a hot start. Look at that. Well, they can't keep this up. They're not going to sustain that. And then (laughs) bit by bit by bit, it was like, wait, are the Giants actually good? Are the Giants actually really good? Are all these players who are seemingly performing over their heads just better than we thought they were? And if so, did the Giants make them better? So. Take are the through. Giants the best? <laughs> what? Exactly. Are they the best? <laughs> like, are they the best? <laughs> that was kind of the conversation. So, I mean, were there any think pieces just about like the arrogance of the industry and like the faith in the projection systems? Yes, like, there were a few. Perhaps. There were. Oh, there were a few. Oh, <laughs> yeah. good. I could send you some links, um, but yeah, yeah. I mean, please, how much? How much did they links. surpass your own? expectations and then just I mean how much did you buy in or or how quickly did you buy in and believe that no this was actually a really great team I have these streaks of of like boring earnestness and I actually truly very early believed but that's just because like I believed the players and the players set like very very clear goals now as I was taking note of these goals Like other players, I had this hilarious conversation with Yaz where we were talking about that very thing. It's kind of like a now infamous meeting very, very early in the season where some lofty goals and expectations about the way that we would go about these goals would be, you know, how we'd go about this. And many of the, the more senior players spoke and said 
you know, things that would certainly ring throughout the season. A lot of that because, you know, and, and a lot of that was just like kind of like my job. Like, and in many, many ways, like my job is to kind of just like preserve and regurgitate their own culture back to them. Like somebody should have time to do that, right? Imagine if you have a team meeting at the beginning of the year and you say all of these things. Like think about how many times maybe you've like been out with like a bunch of friends and you're all drunk and you're saying all this stuff like, I love you, man. Like we should really do like more of this and more of that. Like imagine if you just you just like had an assistant that just like held you to those things like all the time. And so, you know, there's quite a bit of that. There's quite a bit of that in in, in what I do. But so, yeah, I, I definitely believed very, very early. Obviously. 107 is it's a lot of games. You know, 100 is a lot. Does either team win that many games without the other team as the pace car? I'm not mm. sure. There's also a chance that we both entirely ignored the other team because that is also very, very, very giant. And it's also very, very baseball. You know, like in baseball, the media and other people, they're just like, you know, what about those Dodgers? And and the guys are just like, what? Like, we're playing the Pirates today. The, the Pirates keep, keep fucking whooping our ass. Like, that's who we're worried about actually right now. You know, like we worry about them when we actually play them. So, yeah. So nobody really knows. And that's the best thing about it. There's all these guesses. I don't know. I, I think that the the projection thing of we're just pretty deep into the whole like, let me rather than sort of talk about the yins and yangs of of like, you know, if X, Y, Z happens, the Giants could be it, at this range of wins. And if X, Y, you know, X happens like they could be at this range. Like there's a there's kind of less of that of that. And it's just kind of like, let me fucking hit a bullseye right? like on national television. And so if that's if that's what's going on, you know, people will often be very, very wrong. It was the season that they were, you know, very, very wrong. So I don't know. We didn't see Donald Trump either. But, you know, you could have if you asked any of your black friends how racist people actually are, you know. <laughs> but the Giants are a much more pleasant surprise. <laughs> yeah, far, far more pleasant. <laughs> Yeah. Far more pleasant surprise. And then also, let's be honest, like, who was watching our games? <laughs> like, mm. really? Who was watching our games? Like, you know, if we're being honest, most people are watching the Mets, the Yankees, the Dodgers, and Otani starts. You know, and, and lots of those people, I would imagine, were the people, like, weighing in. Like, how are they doing this? Like, maybe watch the game. <laughs> we have really good players. <laughs> like, really good players. And then, you know, the 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 fine wine aging. Oof. I don't know. Ask them. You know, it's you never get honest answers. And then the honest truth is it's like the people that are right in the thick of it have no idea. <laughs> they could make some shit up on a podcast. They have no we have no idea how all of that happened. So I, I definitely I, I definitely feel that the players got overlooked it was like everybody, it was, it was like, everybody was like, how are they so good? And like, people just like looking past the players, like perhaps it's because the players are really good. And, and so they, it felt like they didn't really get their due. It's very, very clear that Farhan and Scott are very good at fantasy baseball, right? <laughs> They're very good at it. Most people fucking, they go to Ross or TJ Maxx or Marshalls. You come out with jeans that don't really fit. These fucking guys come out with Lamont Wade and Luis Gonzalez. Like, it's, yeah. 
It's impressive. Yeah. That definitely helps. You know, I, I don't know. There's, I, I just want to highlight that, you know, in the center of it, people are still sort of unsure. It's a mystical kind of thing. But um, it did kind of bother me that there weren't enough people that were just kind of talking about how good the players were and performed. And there was definitely some, there were some good bounces for sure. Yeah. Mm -hmm. You brought up the Dodgers and the sort of daily awareness of them. We did want to ask you sort of what is the, either the motivational value or perhaps the frustration of operating in a division where you have one and, you know, you were meant to have two before the Padres fade in the second half competitors where, you know, if you had been in the central, you could have, you know, you could have won a lot fewer games and... uh, (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and sort of waltzed in, but you had the <laughs> you had the misfortune of being in the NL West. So how how much does that operate either in the forefront or the background as you're navigating the season? You know, it's like it seems like a good time to b- deploy one of those quotes about like you want to be the best, you play the best, like something something <laughs> like that. Yeah. You know, waltzing in is cool too. Uh, <laughs> that's that's a nice time. You know, the the season's so crazy that. You know, the end of it, it it really does truly matter. Like, what's going on the last week of the season? Yeah. Losing Brandon Belt, for me, we lose the World Series right there, losing Brandon Belt. The World Series, yes, the playoffs is a crapshoot. But, you know, we were, were like, maybe the best team in baseball, and we lost our Barry Bonds. Like, Belt was just out of his mind last year. And that was also my favorite part of of the whole thing. Like... This is like America very dropped the ball. Like Brandon Belt basically turned into a pro wrestler and a comedian at the same time. I'm not sure I've seen better TV. And we were, you know, like talking about whatever, like boring Tim Tebow, Paola, you know, narratives rather than that. Like he was he was go he was doing press conferences, like talking about being like the greatest in the world and it just it was like he went full Muhammad Ali and nobody found it interesting at all but he was yeah I mean that I thought that was a a huge you know huge 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 blow even though uh we had been doing it all year because we were very injured all year long so that's why you know having a really really strong culture not just you know I think we talk about culture usually about as this sort of like you know, happy thing or not a happy thing, just like a, like a social thing. I don't mean socially. I mean, you know, like a, so like a culture that actually seeps into the way the game is played and the way the game is viewed and the way that players like newcomer players sort of take their cues to step in. There are bad cultures and, and they don't really help people at all, but you know, people just kept stepping in, but that was, you know, a major, major blow to have at the end of the season so anyway, ranting a bit, but you know, the last week of the season really means a lot. So if you're if you're not playing meaningful games for 3 weeks, like maybe that's a disadvantage. Like maybe you just need to kind of like the best case scenario is that you're kind of like, you know, maybe the that Nationals team, like, you know, you're bad and then like you just climb out of that and then like just it's just full steam ahead and then yeah. you know a couple trades were even better. What? Like that's maybe that's that's like the uh, the formula. Nobody really knows. So I don't know. I, I don't. For me personally, I love baseball. It means I get to watch really good players. When we play the we play the Dodgers and the Padres. You know, it's like 
there's a pitch, a great pitch away. It's like off the end of the bat served to right field, like hit exactly to where the guy's positioned. Same thing happens on the inner half of the plate, just like that over and over amazing pitches. Like it's just good to watch. It's great. Obviously it's not great for business. Like I'd, I'd much prefer that we won 140 games and kept, you know, going obviously to the playoffs. So I don't know, maybe that's a, a shit answer, but it's, really entertaining there are some really really good players just like a great time for baseball i don't know if that's like a cop-out answer well you talked about the fact that the players were good and that maybe that was underappreciated and i think that's true because the thing about the giant season was that it was surprising that they were performing so much better than everyone had anticipated but the underlying numbers the metrics of the team like the building blocks added up to that record it wasn't like the mariners season last year right where everyone was incredibly clutch and it was fun but it felt kind of fluky Fluky. maybe like Mm -hmm. the giants had the run differential and everything that would go along with a team that was winning so much so i think what took people by surprise was that the players who were so good Some of them had been good before. Others had never been that good before. Others hadn't been that good in years and were at an age where you wouldn't expect them to get better suddenly. So that's the thing. It's like not to say that these weren't good players, but it seemed like almost the entire team at once just like played better than those players individually had before or had in some time. So I was going to ask just if you had a, a best story or favorite story of a player who has come to the Giants and has had some higher gear unlocked, some some latent talent that they were not fully leveraging, or maybe just the Giants have managed to deploy them in some way that maximized their skills, or maybe they just decided to take advantage of some of the resources that are out there and they made themselves better. Like, Is there a, a good example in your mind of someone who has sort of exemplified the possibilities of player development now and coaching that the Giants have embraced to get to a higher level of performance. For sure. Two of them. I mean, the first I already explained belt, I could just be kind of shorter about that just because he'll tell you, you should, you know, talk to him sometime. I don't know if you've ever had him on, on the podcast, but talk about somebody who's like far more fascinating um, than you think. Like, you know, I had never, I don't think that I had seen real, like a Brandon Belt interview or anything like that, but you know, it's a baseball interview. Like we're just doing the Bull Durham thing. So you wouldn't mm-hmm. really know, but like, this is like one extremely fascinating person and like also like a bit of a genius. And for me, for, you know, per our conversations, like I think a great deal of his late bloom is just like a confidence thing. And so, you know, we were taught, and and so we're close in age. And so even though we were totally, totally different players, a lot of the same script was like taught to all of us. It's like hitting the ball in the air is bad, you know, focus on these like line drives, line drives, line drives, hit the ball the other way, you know, all of this stuff. You know, I think that part of his, I think, huge flowering to me was this this like all of a sudden just not being afraid to be great now it's a really it's a it's like a thing that i struggle to deploy it's like using impossible as a as an adjective which is like something that like i cringe at like in in creative writing but it's like it's something the first time that i had ever heard it was from lou montanez i was just 
like put on waivers or DFA'd or whatever by the Cubs. And I had this conversation with Lou before he's going out and Lou is like hitting like 390 in AAA. So he's like great a little bit late. And he says it and it just kind of like hit me like a ton of bricks. So there are all sorts of things often keeping players from just going and getting it. And a lot and a lot of times it's just like things within them that are just like holding them back for whatever reason. Like they're just not prepared to to be like the very, very best or they're not prepared. Like, I don't know what to do with all that, all of that success. It may seem kind of abstract, but it's like actually really the simplest thing. And I know that a lot of athletes, I think, would know what I'm talking about. It's it's like a emotionally or socially, there's just something that just makes you like a little bit shy about having like massive success. And so perhaps it is subconsciously, physically actually holding you back from getting it. He is just like free and clear. And, you know, some of it was just like some of the things that he was taught, but also it is players, if they're able to, if they're able to be good enough to stay in the league, most of them will get better, obviously, until like their physical abilities like decline. So, you know, there's a, there's a sweet spot. It's just that we just don't see that many players get into it, right? With a player who's hurt quite a bit, you might see flashes of it. And then never see it. And then if you're looking at that small sample, you're just like, oh, well, that guy just sucks. You're you're not realizing like, actually, he's amazing, but then he's hurt and then he's mm-hmm. hurt and then he's hurt, but then he's amazing. You know, so that's how I would explain that. The other one is obvious, you know, Brandon Crawford. Mm-hmm. And if you talk to him, he would he would tell you, you know, he would credit his coaches. You know, there's a lot of things that he did. He was extremely open. Uh, and there was a lot of things that he did to sort of, you know, bring out some things that were already there. I mean, you're talking about, you know, one of the better athletes, you know, of our generation, like silently, quietly, for sure, one of the better athletes of our generation. So and we're talking, obviously, performing in a way that he had never, ever really performed like he had always right. been good and dangerous, but not like like not like MVP like last year. So, yeah, and that's, you know, he is pretty, you know, not really shy about saying, you know, I got quite a bit of, you know, direction and um, and help from, you know, from our coaches. So th- it's, you know, players are, are um, you know, unlocking what, what they have is like what a process that can be depending on your player, understanding them is very, very important. And then, you know, again, like having the, like, do you, do you even know, there are some, there are some players that are, you know, I think I would say like easier, let's say to fix Mm -hmm. than others for sure. But I I know for sure that there are some, there are some teams that are, are not quite sure exactly like really like what to do. The simplest way that I could, that I could put it and make it clear is like, there's like kind of like a cookie cut cutter approach in general that is, and th- and this applies to pitching as well. It's like, we have cut this cookie and it's a fantastic cookie. And this is the way, this is like, this is how cookies are made. So we're with every player, we're going to attempt to make the same exact cookie. Right. Mm-hmm. And um, if, if you're going to do that, you're going to hit on like 10 percent of those what's very difficult is is meeting the player where they are and figuring out like how to like make them into the best cookie possible 
mm-hmm. to weirdly continue. To <laughs> yeah. Well, what is the biggest difference then between, say, when you were coming up as a player, even reaching the major league level? Like, is it just that there is less bad advice, counterproductive advice of the kind you were talking about, not to hit fly balls or whatever it is? Is it that you have certain tech and just information that wasn't available there through StatCast and motion tracking and Rapsodo and all of these things that I'm sure the Giants make great use of? Is it just the resources, like having more coaches the way that the Giants do? Like, what is the biggest difference? Are there certain things that you look back and think, man, if I had known this, if I had been told that, who knows how my career could have been different? I think that every single person feels that. Every single coach, it's, you know, I think about it quite a bit. I'm like, oh, if only somebody told me this (laughs) or that. So very simply, the there's just so much more information out there. Half of the players that we're getting, like, have their own ideas coming in. Yeah. That was true before, but not like half of them. You know, you have... Before, when I was playing, you, you had, you know, I don't know, one in 10 players were like very coached and had their own, you know, ideas and their own hitting coaches sort of mark. And then you had a bunch of guys that were just kind of showing up for whatever we had at the buffet. There's so much information that if you are the type of player that likes to think for yourself and read and research, Oh, it's incredible. There's just so much. There's so much information. It's just, you know, you could you could read a little bit of this, a little bit of that and be like, mm, I like the way he explains it. I don't really agree with this. This kind of works for my body. I mean, there's so many different things and we're still, you know, getting getting closer. You know, years ago, I was always saying that I found it insane that nobody could just tell you what bat you should use. (laughs) And then like, that's a thing now, apparently. So yeah, we're just, we're just getting closer and, and closer to like solving almost everything, or at least like getting closer to, to trying with things. And so, you know, it's just easy. If you think for yourself, there's, there's a lot there. Now also too, if you've got if you've got coaches that do a lot of homework for you, you can just be open and 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 curious and come away with with quite a bit. So I don't know. I mean, I think there were a few examples of coaches who were kind of like, I don't know, I would say there were a few examples of coaches that had like, this is how it's done. And like, just trust me and, and do it this way. But um, I think that there was... You know, I I found I felt that it was like kind of like wishy, like a little bit wishy washy. And now it feels like it feels like such specific answers to things are given. And there's lots of different, you know, frameworks to sort of like talk about them. Like we can, you know, we can just say kind of totally external. We could we could be mostly internal there. You've got guys that are just, you know, there are some coaches like all they concern themselves with are just like the mechanics of the swing. And then there are others who are, you know, far more focused on like approach and like the competition and sort of like the game theory of, of you know, arsenals and things like that. So 
I'm curious within sort of the context of all of that information and all of the potential specialization that a coach might have, like, what do you, and I I realize that there are probably things that you're not going to be able to talk about in relationship to this question, but what do you view as sort of the next frontiers of player development? Like, where does the sport need to go next to continue to unlock competitive advantage? Okay. So I'm obsessed with this. So individual players are experts in their ways. Some of them, you've met people that are really good at things and just like don't maybe know how or why. And then there are others who are like less good at them, less good at things, but they know exactly why they were bad or Mm. why they were almost good. Now those people become coaches often, sure. Now I digress a, a bit, talking about great, great players. We don't really do enough to reverse engineer their successes because a lot of times it's like, if they can't just art like cleanly, articulately explain, this is how I hit sliders, then mm-hmm. we're just like not really interested. So I just think that we need to do a much better job of reverse engineering that information. And I think that that is like, that's like anthropology field work. I would love to do that. I have no time right now, but that is, you know, part of, that was actually like part of my initial pitch because I think that that's everything. You know, they're all, they're strange. Like, so, so if I, if I go into my head, I have all these weird sort of frameworks for how I played the game. Like, for instance, I thought the way that you hit a changeup is to wait for the last possible moment. That maybe seems crazy for you, but I'm, I have such a specific idea of what that, what that means. So I could go out and say that to 100 baseball players and it resonates with like 30 of them. Mm-hmm. That's still a win. It's just, you know, it's just like making sure that those 70 that it doesn't resonate with are just like, yeah, I don't get it. So I'm just ignoring that. Mm -hmm. So now that's just like one example picked at random. I think that every player, that's like how they play the game. So, so um, like why is, so we should understand. So why is Evan Longoria like so good at third base? Like, why is he so good? Like, why are his hands so good? If you watch this guy do drills, I mean, I saw it up close 15 years ago or whatever. And like, now I'm seeing it again, where you watch him do drills and he just like looks better than all the other players. So what's going through his head. So like, Mm -hmm. you know, there's a goofy version of this where you just like put one of those like neurosensor nets on his head and like, (laughs) see what's, see what's going on. (laughs) But like, I just think that there is a, there's a, there's a way to do it. That's just more kind of like a, like a series of, of interviews and things like that. And, and I, I just think that that's like the next way of, of doing things. Cause I think that players, like there are many players that they, they may like, you'll talk to them and they will not necessarily seem like geniuses, but they're, some of them are total fucking geniuses. They just maybe are not articulate or they're, they're only like, there are many, not every genius is like well-rounded and like reads poetry. Like there right. are many, many of them that like, like I'm Paris. a mechanic, <laughs> like I'm a mechanic. I'm like, I'm a genius. I like, just don't care for John Steinbeck. Like I just, I'm a mechanic and mm-hmm. I'm a genius when it comes to the car. Well, 
So if you can kind of hang in there and get quality time with geniuses and just kind of keep going for for like ways to sort of reverse engineer their processes and understand like the little frameworks that they have about thinking about the game, I think that you're in a a really, really great place. So that was part of like that two-way communication is kind of, it's like kind of like phase. It's like the next phase of, of this project. Like, I don't know if we'll get there. Like I said, it would be different for every team. You know, it's like in a way I'm like, you know, like a contractor, right? If I, if I was working for the Brooklyn Nets, what I would do is a, is a very different product than what I would do for the Lakers. And that's incumbent on like their, you know, their staff, their players, what the particular issues that they have are as a team, like what their, you know, blind spots are. But, you know, I think that that, that specific piece of the of the project like would be really fascinating in any sport also maybe maybe it's a dumb idea and i just really want to do it because it'd be fun yeah but i i quite think it's a decent idea that is interesting because i think there's a temptation not just in sports but in any field you look at the top performers and you think oh they're just gifted right they're just more gifted or they are just geniuses it's like something inherent in them and maybe there's some element of that but i think often you look and it's well they practiced more or they practiced better or they do something that actually could be replicable by someone who maybe is not quite as fast or not quite as strong or at least not initially like a lot of what looks like a, just a, a gift is something that they kind of gave themselves by doing something that made them better yeah. so That's smart. But I think one other interesting aspect of this is that a lot of these things, it's just kind of challenging, investigating, sometimes contradicting some of these old maxims, these old beliefs about what you want a swing to look like, what kind of batted ball you want. Can you throw a fastball up in the zone? Do you even want to throw a fastball at all? You know, the idea of the Mm -hmm. fastball count, right? And now you can just throw any pitch in any count. And if you have a good Mm -hmm. secondary, quote unquote, pitch, then that should be your primary pitch. Like a lot of those ideas have just gotten tossed out. And some of that is driven by the data and technology that shows that certain old ideas were wrong or certain old ideas were right and were underapplied. But also, at least with the Giants, it seems like there's just an attitude of we're going to take any advantage that you give us. And this is not just necessarily like super high tech secret proprietary stuff. It's like we're going to bunt against the shift and then maybe those guys won't shift on us so much because they know that we might bunt. Or the play the other day where Yastrzemski tried to do the deke on the yeah. game-ending sacrifice fly, right? And <laughs> oh, tried to deke the runner. To... <laughs> yeah, it didn't work, but he tried it, right? And but, that's it almost, sort of... but it could have worked. It could have worked. It could have yeah. worked, right. Or I was going to like the kind of Giants, you know, declaring open season on the unwritten rules this year and basically saying like, we don't recognize the unwritten rules. Like if you give us this, we're going to take it regardless of what the situation is. And I know there's just... Just a lot of like tradition based resistance to that. Like, I don't know how that would have gone down during your playing days, but now it seems like the Giants are kind of leading the way to toppling, overturning some of that stuff. Yeah, that it that wouldn't have worked as well back in my day. Uh, <laughs> like that's that long ago. But yeah, it definitely wouldn't have. But why? There's just because there was a higher concentration of like crotchety people who like made rookies feel uncomfortable and probably play worse as a result. So yeah, it wouldn't have. But you know, you said about the advantages thing. 
I think that that is like the thing that the real truth of like what I'm what I've missed after so much time up until like when I was playing, obviously, like there, there are advantages and there's like the same old things that like some teams are doing and some teams are not. It's like the and it's it kind of feels like when I was playing, obviously, you know, I was a rookie and then got hurt and sort of disappeared. So I didn't get to become like a four or five year player who's like comfortable enough and now good enough that I'm just like, you know what, like. I'm going to like look to, uh, you know, sit on certain pitches or like do the or like, you know, intentionally miss a pitch early in the game. So I get it a little bit later, you know, like these like AP batting kinds of things. Right. What's so fascinating is that right now uh, advantages that they they're they're around for a season sometimes and then they're gone. So if you can find one and exploit one while it's exploitable, you must do it. And, you know, you have to have the personnel that can do that. If you have young kind of like looser players, like, you know, it's it's not going to work as well. Like when you have when you have players who are a little bit more mature and poised who, for whom the game is like a little bit slower, you know, those things can work, but, but those advantages, like they can disappear in a season. Like sometimes the advantages are like as simple as scouting. Like this guy does this all the time. So until he stops doing that, let's exploit the hell out of this, this weakness. So they're all out there. You know, do you have the personnel that can find them? If you do, you, you can, absolutely exploit that for advantages until it disappears but they disappear quite you know quite quickly mm -hmm. sometimes it's as simple as the pitcher that has this extremely how would you say like extremely predictable sequence like he's just not in the league anymore because he got hit too hard you know sometimes it's as simple as that but yeah that's that is really really interesting in our in the game right now because obviously with as, as intense as scouting gets, that's part of your job is to clean up those weaknesses like on your own team, or at least notify people of them so that, you know, teams can stop exploiting them. Mm -hmm. So, so, you know, a big thing now is like, if you just look at all of the tendencies that all of your players have, you know, you just want to make them less predictable, like in general. So like, if you like only bunt at the 1-0 count, somebody should tell you that you only bunt at the 1-0 count. Like maybe mm -hmm. you don't know. <laughs> maybe every time it happens, you're just like, this would be a great time to bunt. <laughs> it's like, you know, someone should tell you. So that's, you know, that's also part of the, uh, you know, part of the challenge of, of like coaching and quality control, essentially. It's just like making people aware of those things because, you know, we're all like, we're zombies, <laughs> you know, just playing game after game after game, like, Groundhog's Day every day. <laughs> and you were a position player and you said you're more involved on the offensive side maybe now. And there is just this eternal battle between batters and pitchers, right? And it seems like every time that there is some advance on the technological side, it seems to be harnessed first or best by the defense, by run prevention. And there are a lot of reasons why that is. Hitting is reactive and pitchers can just kind of decide what they want to do before every pitch, etc. But do you see that 
changing or are there things that are leveling the playing field there? Are there tools that you can take advantage of as a video coach, as someone who's helping hitters more often, I guess, to kind of keep pace with just all the incredible advances that people are making on the pitching side? I have nothing super sexy for you there. It's a beautiful (laughs) struggle between pitchers and position players. It's everything culturally too. It's like, I tell people I'm obviously like, you know, very much engaged in like the tactical warfare of baseball now, but like up until this year, like really didn't care for it. I was more like, you know, just, you know, interested in stories and people, but (laughs) however, that is at the center of everything. The, like the fundamental differences between pitchers and between hitters. It's like, it never gets old, you know, like those, you know, like rom-coms that are specifically about the difference between men and women, like Mm -hmm. they're, they're very watchable, (laughs) you know? So it's just, it's always a thing. I don't have much for that because it's, you know, baseball is an ecosystem and, you know, the office of the commissioner, they can tweak that ecosystem when things are, when, you know, the balance is not what they like. Right. So, yeah. And, you know, I would expect them to, right? Like maybe I'm too, too like hitter. I think of myself as like a failed, like left-handed pitcher, really, who was throwing with the wrong arm. I like, I pitching, there's nothing more fun to me than to be a pitcher. Like I really do love pitchers, but like as a hitter, like you must hate them. Uh, you must hate their kind as as a hitter, really, yeah. truly, and all of the underhanded things that they do. Like you, you must. And so I just think that will they have to move the mound back? Like, is this interesting to watch? Is it interesting to watch guys like attempt to throw fastballs at the top rail like every pitch? Like, is that interesting? Is it interesting to watch guys like come in like these freak shows come in in the seventh, eighth and ninth? And it's like, you know, they're just like walking. They're like walking guys, striking guys out, pop up. It's boring. Like, is that do we want to see that? Like, I, you know, I don't know. So like, you know, it, it we could easily be living in this world where people are just like, well, like we wouldn't want to change anything so that the record books were different. And we just be watching some form of like you know, boring, annoying thing that we don't want to watch. So I don't know. It's tough to say. I just think that the the ecosystem will be changed and, you know, we'll just like adjust. But, you mm-hmm. know, obviously pitchers will always have the upper hand as they like, you know, give the thing life. And we're always as hitters just reacting to the things that they're doing. Right. So we can end with something silly, which is that when the Yaz attempted deke happened, I know you said it it got you excited that a lot of outfielders want to do something like that, whether they actually try to or not. Do you have a play that you wish someone would try or that you wished that you would try or maybe that you did try when you were a player? Is there a dream play that you have in mind? The Chris Coughlin play, I think everybody's dreamed of that. I just was so proud of him. <laughs> I thought it was Remind everyone. The Chris Coglin play is when he dove, he like Superman dove over the catcher and scored a run mm-hmm. coming at a very high rate of speed. I'm sure the catcher was just scared that he was going to get run over. That's a really good one. I watched Carl Crawford tag up from second and score. Mm. Thought I was like, didn't know that was allowed. <laughs> I actually did that some years later and was really pleased with myself because it was like the only good thing that I had done really that whole month. 
<laughs> Beyond that, I don't know. I mean, like we haven't seen a hidden ball trick in a long time. We were and I'll just tell talking you what, about that. Yeah. yeah. I'll tell you what, these modern players, there are a lot of things, but they're kind of spacey. So <laughs> there's uh there is opportunity there. It's amazing. The game is it's like so interesting. Like nobody's you know, like nobody's really fast. Uh defensive positioning is so good, like does it matter? Like, do you need the best defenders? Not really. Like, it's just, it's just, it's interesting. It felt like before, back in my day, felt <laughs> kind of like every team had like at least one guy who was like a 6'3", guy. It felt like it, like at least like somewhere, you know, in the, in the depth chart. And it's like not really the case anymore. It's cool as hell that you have guys that are playing so many positions I was so impressed with the Royals catcher outfielder dude that we that just came to town. So that's really cool. But it's just, you know, things are kind of different. But yeah, I do. I hope that's not like the beginning of the end for me saying like these, you know, these young players. I don't know if they're paying attention to their fundamentals. But uh, I, yeah, I don't know. I, I think it might I think it might be a thing. And there are reasons for it, right? There are there are definitely reasons for it. Look, I don't know. It just feels maybe I'm being influenced because I know the narrative is out there that like base running is is historically bad. Uh isn't it? Is that it's I think I've seen people that have been take, saying yes. that. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I've seen that take. You know, baseball, the game looks different. I've been closer to where are you guys in New York? I am. I'm in Arizona. You're in Arizona. Well, I've been closer for the last couple of years. I've been closer to that life where you're just like in New York, like watching some games. And and then now I'm watching some games on TV. And now I'm I'm like with a team watching teams come in and like feeling the experience of this team coming in compared to the experience of the next team coming in. So you're seeing the difference of like, what does it feel like to go through their lineup three times? What does it feel like to go through this lineup three times? What does it feel like to get into this bullpen and get into that bullpen? It's like, you know, it's it's quite, quite different. And um, for me, I'm seeing some like spacey shit going on. So I, I think that there's, um, I think that we're good for a hidden ball trick. Yeah. I guess that's my answer. Yeah. All right. Well, the silliest possible last thing, then I get the sense that you were probably not wearing a stashing players on the IR isn't cheating t-shirt. <laughs> <laughs> are you are you ready for the, the slap story, the fantasy football dispute I, to go I'm away? Not, I'm not wearing that t-shirt because <laughs> I'm a lover and um, <laughs> look, Jock Peterson, I will tell you, he's one of my favorite people that I've met recently mm -hmm. there's definitely it's like that with almost everybody you watch people do their boring ass bull Durhamsy interviews and you're just like <laughs> oh, whatever and then like you meet some of them you're just like oh my god this person's amazing <laughs> just really 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 like them tommy fam also gave my favorite interview perhaps in baseball history when he explained on father's day that he wanted to thank himself for tossing the ball to himself Mm -hmm. Tommy, lastly, from Durango High School in Las Vegas to the Cardinals to a moment like this, who do you want to thank for helping you get here? There's a lot of people I could thank, you know, but, um, you know, I, I'm proud of myself, to be honest with you. I remember throwing a ball against the wall, playing catch with myself, throwing a ball up, hitting it, you know, throwing batting practice to myself. You know what I mean? 
I believed in myself from a young age, you know. It ain't like I had a dad out there to, to um, play catch with me or, or throw me batting practice. So, you know, I'm proud of myself. So, like, they're just two people that I have a lot of respect for. Like, you know, I'm obviously team jock. I just think the whole thing is, you know, kind of boring and silly. Uh, but, you know, hey, uh, I guess the people like it. You know, I didn't wear I didn't wear a shirt. I won't be wearing a shirt. You know, I don't play fantasy football either. I, yeah. uh, so, yeah, like, anyway. I just I just don't care. The whole thing's boring. But, you know. <laughs> I hope they uh, get together for tea sometime. Yeah. You know? We've talked before about like whether baseball players are funny or at least publicly funny, right? Because what passes for public baseball humor, often not great, or it's the same sort of jokes and pranks repeated over and yeah. over again. And I guess it's sort of the same when it comes to like baseball drama and like getting a window and insight into like interplayer relations. So it's just, it's rare. Like if, if this were some other sport where a lot of that tends to get aired more publicly, maybe on social media, maybe it wouldn't have been as big a deal. But in baseball, to actually get the exhaustive explanation that Jack gave and then the, the back and forth that has happened since it has kept it in the public eye. There's been a, a new news cycle every day or two, seemingly yeah. as little tidbits come out. Yeah, it just highlights that it is always a slow news day in baseball, which is <laughs> yeah. one of the problems, which is yeah. one of baseball's problems, really. That's yeah. why we need more hidden ball tricks. Exactly. Right. Yeah. And more people and podcast guests like Fernando Paris, who uh, still extremely fun to talk to you. Sorry about my intro. You are immersed in baseball culture again, but it has not robbed you of any of your personality, fortunately. Maybe it's because the Giants are uh, not your typical baseball culture, <laughs> at least traditionally. So just a, a joy to have you on again. And hopefully we can do it again, not years later. I hope so, too. It is always very fun chatting. It's very nice to meet you, Meg. Nice to meet you, too. All right. I forgot to give you today's past blast earlier in the episode. So before I clock out for the week, let me give you that and a few follow-ups. As always, this comes from Richard Hirschberger, saber historian, author, researcher, writer of Strike Four, The Evolution of Baseball, a book that I hope some of you will be picking up. This is episode 1864, so today's Past Blast, of course, is from 1864, and this is a brief excerpt from the Brooklyn Eagle on June 16th, 1864. It says, Eureka versus Empire Clubs. Miller was at second and Benson at first when Jewett hit a high ball which Burroughs, the Eureka pitcher, could easily have held on the fly. Had he done so, however, only one player would have been put out. Therefore, for strategical reasons, he muffed it, and picking the ball up quickly, threw it to third base, and it being forwarded rapidly to second, both the men that were forced to run to those bases were put out. You've probably picked up on which scenario this is describing. Richard writes, This is the infield fly play, my name for the play that the modern infield fly rule abolishes. Under the modern rule, the umpire would have called this an infield fly, putting the batter out automatically, and the runners would have remained safely at their bases. This rule was not yet imagined. Burroughs, by intentionally muffing the ball, forces the runners off their bases, but with such a late start that he is able to turn a double play. This was not a trick play. Plays such as the hidden ball trick rely on the runner not paying attention. This is not the issue with the infield fly play. The runners have no way of knowing ahead of time whether the fielder will catch or drop the ball, so they don't know whether to run or to stay at their bases. This was a difficult play for the fielder. It was easy to misplay, resulting in no outs at all. So it was admitted as skillful play when executed successfully. 
As a final note, he says, everything you think you know about the reasons for the infield fly rule is wrong. This is too big a subject for one minute, but he sends me a link to a deep dive he did for Sabre on the origin of the infield fly rule, which I will link on the show page. It appears to have been legal during a period from about 1859, when tagging up became a thing, to maybe the mid-1870s or so, but it's hard to pin down. Richard told me the language of momentarily held is not the most transparent. This is why it is misunderstood today. You wouldn't pick up the intent from reading the rules. I figured it out by doing my research the hard way, sifting through reporting for interesting discussions. It wasn't a whole lot more transparent at the time. Nick Young, in later years in his capacity as NL secretary and later president, would put out bulletins in the spring with official interpretations of various rules. This one featured pretty frequently. This is a dead giveaway that it wasn't being enforced consistently. The modern language was implemented in, oh, 1895, I think? It also is not a triumph of clarity, but it was good enough that people, especially umpires, figured it out. And going earlier, Nick Young as an umpire called it in 1872. There is a lot of consensus building in how the game is played that does not always show up in the rules right away or even ever. Richard also adds that he believes the infield fly called in the 2012 NLCS was absolutely correct. Okay, as promised, a few follow-ups. We talked recently about the play that the Cardinals pulled off where Nolan Gorman just ran right through second with the bases loaded instead of sliding in so that he would not break his momentum there. He would be safe at second and the runner who was on third could score. And we thought, this is smart. Why doesn't everyone do it? Well, there is one reason, which Connor pointed out to us. The big concern about running through second is if the fielder going to the bag steps through the bag and there's a huge collision. The Cards did it against the Cubs a couple weeks ago, and the runner very nearly ran over Nick Madrigal. The shortstopper second baseman continuing through the bag when catching the ball is fairly common, and you're only doing this on a bang-bang play, therefore increasing the likelihood of a collision. All it takes is one big collision before you have an issue. Good point, Connor. Enjoyed that play. Hope to see it more, but also would prefer for runners and infielders not to injure each other. Now, most of you probably heard that on Wednesday, the Astros pulled off two immaculate innings in the same game against the same three batters. Very fun fact. Luis Garcia had the first immaculate inning. That's three strikeouts on nine pitches. Phil Maton had the second. And better yet, they did it against the same three batters, each of them, Nathaniel Lowe, Ezekiel Duran, and Brad Miller. And as Sarah Langs tweeted, this is the first time on record there have been two immaculate innings on a single calendar date, let alone in the same game or by the same team. So that's pretty amazing, but Patreon supporter Jeffrey asked a different question. He noted, I just watched Luis Garcia pitch an immaculate inning and then strike out the first batter in the next inning on three pitches as well. Unfortunately, he then struck out the following batter on five pitches. What's the record for number of consecutive strikeouts on three pitches recorded by one pitcher? So he had an immaculate inning in a third, essentially. And that actually is the record within one game, dating back to 1988, which is when pitch-by-pitch data started. Garcia was the seventh to have four consecutive three-pitch strikeouts in a single game after Andy Ashby in 1991, Jesus Sanchez in 1998, Matt Clement, 2003, Francisco Liriano, 2012, Craig Kimbrell, 2017, and Kenta Maeda, 2018. However, the record holder, if we count multiple outings, appears to be Tony Watson. On April 2nd and 6th of 2014, an all-star season for him, he had five consecutive strikeouts strung across those two games on three pitches each. Thank you to Lucas Apostolaris of Baseball Prospectus for looking that one up, and you can check out a blog from Ben Clemens at Fangraphs for more on three-pitch strikeouts. That will be linked on the show page. Listener Peter said, last week I watched the Red Sox at Angels game on June 9th. I thought the bottom of the third was interesting. Nick Pavetta was pitching. He struck out Otani and then struck out Stassi. 
The third batter was Walsh. He did not strike out but hit a soft grounder toward first. Pavetta was coming off the mound in that direction and made a one unassisted put out at first. I was excited because I was under the impression that this has all happened in nine pitches, three per batter. So my first thought was that this should qualify as some kind of special version of an immaculate inning. Since the pitcher threw nine pitches and made three outs without any assistance from a fielder, I went back to watch it again. It turned out I had missed a ball, making it a 10-pitch inning. Still, I wonder how you feel about it. Suppose it was a nine-pitch inning. Do you feel such an inning should count as an immaculate inning because the pitcher did it himself? Strikeouts and unassisted put out, is that immaculate because he didn't really rely on the defense behind him? Good question, but I would say no. I think an immaculate inning is specifically about three strikeouts on nine pitches. It's not just about doing it yourself, or you could have a much shorter inning where you had a bunch of unassisted put outs or whatever. So I think the strikeouts are key to the accomplishment. Also, a couple of responses to our discussion of Ozzy Albies and his strange foot fracture on a swing the other day. Jack notes, I thought it was interesting that this isn't the first time Ozzy has fractured something while taking a swing. In September of 2016, he suffered an alacronon fracture in his right elbow during a double-A playoff game. That's the pointy bone in your elbow, I believe. He even required surgery to fix it. I think this was maybe even brought up in a few places as a possible reason he signed the contract that he did, with some speculation that maybe he was overly cautious about freak injuries and took an early low offer to get something done quickly. I wouldn't blame him if that's the case, because it's got to be scary to swing if you're Ozzy Alpes now and you're breaking elbows and feet on what seem like fairly routine swings. I'll link to a video of that elbow break as well. He fouled a pitch off, he inside-outed a swing, somehow broke his elbow. Scary stuff. The worst is when a pitcher breaks his elbow throwing a pitch, but I understand that a bit more just considering the stresses that your arm is subjected to. It's a wonder they don't break their arms more often. And Kyla wrote in to say, I once fractured my foot while dancing around my living room. I had just turned 21 when this happened, young and spry. I wasn't even engaging in high-level athletics. Enjoy walking. I will, Kyla. Thanks for that thought. She actually fractured her heel. Didn't need crutches or a cast or anything, but she says it was a bizarre way to injure herself. The human body, indeed. And two responses from Mike. We did a pedantic question and answer about the baseball diamond and whether it actually is a diamond shape. We discussed it being a bit of a misnomer. It's sort of a square. It's a subject of some pedantic controversy. Well, Mike notes, isn't the layout of the four bases still a baseball diamond? As we learned earlier this year, second base isn't centered. It's slightly farther from home plate than we'd expect. That's right, we talked about that. So there are two very slight obtuse angles on the baseball diamond and a very slight acute angle. I guess that's right. Maybe that does kind of technically make it a diamond. Listener Zach says if you were going to be extremely precise, you would call it a baseball kite. But this is not one to be pedantic about in Zach's opinion or in mine. And lastly, that same Mike writes in, in response to the car shield discussion, to send us a commercial that aired during Twins Game games on the radio last year and attempt to break the all-time record in baseball puns in an ad read. Here it is. Ready to break the baseball pun record for a radio ad? Here we go. Looking for a home run on your next home project? Don't strike out by using someone out of left field who makes errors, balks at your needs, isn't safe, and gives you the squeeze by charging double. Your home improvement company aced my window project and working with them was a walk in the park. You can count on them to avoid curveballs and save you time. Plus, they clean up, which is a big relief. Your home improvement company is a huge hit in Twins territory. Visit yourhomeimprovementco.com today. The funny thing is, if not for those dings, I might not have noticed that it wasn't just a normal baseball radio ad. That's sort of how they all sound. 
That'll do it for today and for this week. Thanks, as always, for listening, and thanks to those of you who support the show on Patreon. If you want to be one of them, you can go to patreon.com slash effectivelywild and sign up to pledge some monthly or yearly amount to help keep the podcast going, get yourself access to some perks, and help us stay ad-free, aside from the many other ads that we referenced on this episode. Thanks today to Clemente, Bradley Herring, Joe Camerata, J-Mad, and Thomas Schiavone. Thanks to all of you. Remember, our Patreon extras include access to the Patreon Discord group, monthly bonus pods hosted by yours truly and Meg, a couple of playoff live streams, discounts on t-shirts, and more. You can contact me and Meg via email at podcast.fangrass.com or via the Patreon messaging system if you are a supporter. You can join our Facebook group at facebook.com slash groups slash Effectively Wild. You can rate, review, and subscribe to Effectively Wild on iTunes and Spotify and other podcast platforms. You can follow Effectively Wild on Twitter at EWPod, and you can find the Effectively Wild subreddit at r slash Effectively Wild. Thanks to Dylan Higgins for his editing and production assistance. We hope you have a wonderful weekend, and we will be back to talk to you early next week.